All right, well, let's talk about the role of a steward. We don't use that term very much anymore, but we still have the concept, I think. What's a steward? A steward is someone entrusted with something of great value. And they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to protect it. And they have a responsibility to use it wisely and in accordance with the purposes of the person who entrusted it to them. A steward has something of value, great value, with which he is entrusted. And in order to fulfill a stewardship, sometimes that can be very costly. Just think about the stewardship that was given to Frodo Baggins the Hobbit. I know I risk branding myself as a preacher who can only illustrate from Lord of the Rings, but I promise you I won't do it all the time. And this is a good one. So Frodo Baggins is this little inconsequential person who's caught up in a great battle, the great battle of his age, and through various circumstances he comes into possession of a great treasure, the enemy's ring of power. And if the enemy recovers this ring, no one will be able to stand against him. And so a council of the free peoples convene and they decide that the ring has to be sent deep into enemy territory to the one place where it can be destroyed. And this little guy, Frodo, volunteers to take on this task and the council commissions him with the stewardship of that ring. As the ring bearer, he has to take care of it. He has to prevent it for, to be used for any evil purposes. He mustn't throw it away. And he must carry out the will of the council and find the place where the ring can be destroyed. Now, this guy took on a stewardship willingly, knowing that the road would be long and difficult, and indeed it was. His path took him through many dangers and terrors and sorrows. He got stabbed, he got stung, he got betrayed, he lost a finger... And he, all the time he was feeling the oppression of the enemy. But through it all, he remained faithful to his task. And at last, the ring was destroyed and the enemy overthrown. And, and Frodo himself was brought back safely from the brink of death. And then at the feast, because of course there's a feast. There's got to be a feast to celebrate the victory. Something very interesting happens. A minstrel, a musician, comes and asks to be allowed to sing. And he says, now listen, for I will sing to you of Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. And everybody at the feast laughs and weeps together because of all of his hardships and all of his labors and all of his sufferings in his faithful exercise of that stewardship have been turned into glory. And even though he had to suffer so much, his task was so vital and it accomplished so much good that no one could say it was not worth the cost. Now it turns out that this fictional stewardship is a little like the real live stewardship that we're going to read about today in our passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul is going to account for us how God entrusted him with something of immense value. 
a wonderful secret. But God was finally ready for the secret to get out. And Paul's task as a steward of that secret was to broadcast it as far and wide as possible so that it could benefit lots and lots of people. And we're going to see how exercising his stewardship brought Paul a lot of suffering. His faithfulness to the stewardship brought him hardship and and deprivation and sorrow. The cost was very high. Now the question you and I are going to have to wrestle with today is, is the cost actually worth it? So please turn in your Bibles and... Uh, turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. And if you're using a blue Bible from the seats, you'll find that on page 977, I believe. And we'll begin by reading in verse 1 of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul a prisoner for, the, of, for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, in verse 1, when Paul starts out, he's actually getting ready to pray. Now, this might not be immediately obvious to you, but take a look down at verse 14 of the same chapter, which BJ is going to preach next week. For this reason, see, it starts the same way, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to, and then he goes on and he he asks the Lord for lots of specific blessings for for the Ephesians. But that was what he was going to do back in verse 1. He started to, and then he broke off. Look back there. For this reason, verse 1, for this reason, because of all the wonderful things that Paul had told them about in chapter 2, what are those things? That through the cross of Jesus, he's brought together both Jew and Gentile, brought them near and reconciled them in one body to God, and reconciled them to one another which means that the Gentiles who have believed in Jesus are not strangers anymore. They're part of God's household, and they come to God on equal footing, just like Jews who have believed in Jesus. All those things, all those wonderful things he talked about and that we discovered last week. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he breaks off. He doesn't start the prayer. Because he realizes there's something else he's got to talk to the Ephesians about first, and then he can move to prayer. So what is it that came up? It feels a little bit like a false start on a football play. They were all ready to go, and then something happened. So what happened? Well, the, the problem is that they're upset. They're upset. The Ephesians are upset. They're sad and they're anxious because Paul is in prison. Paul is writing this letter as a prisoner in Rome under house arrest in living quarters that he's renting. And he's appealed his case to Caesar. He's waiting for Caesar to give the case a hearing. Now, Paul's not in a dungeon, but he is chained and he's guarded by soldiers in this house that he's rented 
apartment, maybe. And as Paul says, it's, it's kind of all because of them. It's kind of all because of the Ephesians, especially the Gentiles. He's a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, I, wanna, I want you to see why this is. So turn back several books to the book of Acts, chapter 21, and we're going to get the background for why this is. Why is Paul a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles? So Acts chapter 21, Acts 21, we're going to start in verse 27. Paul's come to Jerusalem after a, after a wonderful mission trip, and he's uh, helping some guys out with a vow. He's in the temple. Then in verse 27, when the seven days of the vow were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Now, Asia is the the Roman province, and Ephesus is the capital of Asia. So, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everywhere, everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have, had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian. Trophimus is a Gentile. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He hadn't, but that does, they thought he had. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort, that's the Romans, that all Jerusalem was in a confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Okay, so the Jews seize him first. Now the Romans have seized him. Then Paul asks the tribune for permission to speak to the crowd. And the tribune says, okay. So Paul begins to give a defense of himself to the Jews who had just a few minutes before been trying to kill him. He explains to them that he also used to persecute the followers of Jesus, but that Jesus had revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus and how he had believed and begun bearing witness that Jesus is the Messiah. Now look in chapter 22, look down in verse 17. He's still talking, he's still talking on the steps of the temple to the crowd. Verse 17 of chapter 22. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. He's relating events that happened probably 20 years ago. And I saw him, saw Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who were believing in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Well, that's how Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. And ever since then, he's been a prisoner of the Romans. But what was it that got him arrested in the first place? It's that Jews from around Ephesus, who knew of his ministry to the Gentiles, stirred up a mob against him. And that mob, when they heard Paul say that Jesus had sent him to minister to the Gentiles, they went bananas. They were overcome with rage. They hated this word that Jesus had sent Paul to the Gentiles. I, Paul, am prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, if you're a Gentile in the Ephesian church and you're hearing this letter and you love Paul and you came to faith through Paul's preaching and you hear that, how are you going to feel? Grieved? Downcast? Maybe even a little guilty? Paul knows that they're upset. And so he, he breaks off the prayer. He's about to pray and ask God to bless them, but he has to do some business first. He's got to comfort them. He's got to comfort them because they're upset over his imprisonment. So now, go back to Ephesians 3 now. That's the backdrop to what's going on here. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. He says, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written before briefly. So how does Paul comfort them? He reminds them of his stewardship, or some of your Bibles might say, his dis- the dispensation of God's grace. God, in his grace, in undeserved kindness, gave Paul this stewardship. He revealed to Paul a mystery. That's the precious thing that was entrusted to Paul. Something that had previously been hidden in God's counsels, but now God was ready to go public with. Well, that's fresh news from God. That's that's a precious thing. That's what, that mystery is what Paul is stewarding. Now, what exactly is the mystery? This great secret that God made known to Paul. Well, pick it up in verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the secret. That's the mystery that God is ready to reveal and that he gave Paul. Now, all through the times of the Old Testament, God had kept this secret close to the chest. See that in verse 5? He did not make this known in former generations. But now, at the beginning of the age of Messiah, he has now revealed it. Not just to Paul, but 
Very much so to Paul, but he's also revealed it to the apostles and the New Testament prophets who were at that time still getting direct revelations by the Spirit. So what's the secret? That the Gentiles, the Gentiles, and remember, most of us are Gentiles. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers in the promise of in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Jews and Gentiles coming to God through Jesus by faith on totally equal footing, incorporated into the one body of the church, which is the people of God, and coming in on equal basis. Paul says, that's new. We didn't know that before. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, what do you mean that's new? Didn't God say that he intended for all the families of the earth to be blessed in Abraham and his seed? Didn't we just hear in the call to worship, let all the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you? And wasn't Israel supposed to be a light to the Gentiles? So what is this? That the, why is it new that the Gentiles get to be included in God's salvation? Well, I don't think the mystery or the, the secret is that salvation blessings can come to the Gentiles. That wasn't new. All those things had been foretold in the Old Testament. But here's what I might say. The, the, the secret is that now salvations, salvation blessings are available to the Gentiles as Gentiles. Because we saw last week in chapter 2, Jesus in his death abolished the ordinances of the Mosaic Law by fulfilling them. Clint Arnold says in his commentary, I I just liked it so much I decided I couldn't word it any better, no one could have anticipated that God would lay aside the conditions imposed by the Mosaic Law for entering a relationship with him and being counted as his people. Because the Mosaic Code separated Gentiles and Jews and requires a Gentile essentially to become a Jew in order to be saved. Because of that, it could not stand as the basis for a plan that gave Jew and Gentile access to God on equal footing. Okay, so what does that mean? As long as the law was in full force, it did not allow the Gentiles to approach God without joining themselves also to the nation of Israel as a necessary fruit of faith in the coming Messiah. You had to become a Jew. If you were a guy, you had to get circumcised. But what the Lord revealed to Paul is that through the blood of Jesus, the Gentiles can now approach God without coming in under the law because Jesus has fulfilled the law. That's the mystery. And, and it, it just doesn't really, you know, it doesn't you know, light off all sorts of cannons in our, in our minds because it's just always been true in our experience. Has, has anyone ever thought, oh, wow, I wonder if I can become a, I wonder if I can ever get saved through the gospel of Jesus without coming under the law and being circumcised? Well, we just don't think like that because it's been so far. But at this time, this was really new. And it was really scandalous, even. See, what scandalized the Jews in Jerusalem so that they were so infuriated with Paul, well, they had categories for a Gentile becoming a Jew through circumcision and submitting to the law. That wasn't news to them. But Gentiles 
getting access to God and to his salvation without coming into Israel? Boy, they couldn't handle that. It's a big paradigm shift. It's a big paradigm shift even for the apostles. It's not a paradigm shift for us, so we struggle to see how awesome and amazing it is. But I want you to remember, we're not going to turn here, but remember Peter's reaction early on, years before this. What happened when Jesus, in a vision, showed him all kinds of animals, all kinds of unclean animals, and told him to kill and eat? What did Peter say? He's like, yum, give me a knife and a fork. No, he said, no, he was horrified. Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then Jesus said, don't call unholy what God has cleansed. Okay, well, what does that mean? Peter wakes up from his trance, and there's three men at the door. And they say, well, an angel told our master Cornelius, who's a Roman, to have you come and talk to us. Okay, so, angel coming to a Roman, not a Jew, to go get Peter and have him come talk to me. Huh, what's going on? Okay, and the Spirit tells Peter, listen, I've sent these guys, you go with them. Peter puts two and two together and says, okay, I guess this means that God intends to include the Gentiles in the Gospel. I wasn't expecting that. Surprise. So he goes, and he goes to Caesarea, it's, you know, like 50 miles up the coast, and Cornelius has got all his Gentile friends together to listen to Peter. And while Peter is preaching about the forgiveness of sins by faith in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit falls upon a lot of them. They're all Gentiles, but the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And later, Peter goes back to Jerusalem, some of the believing Jews are saying, what are you doing? You went and ate with Gentiles? What gives? And Peter tells them what happens. He's like, listen, I was preaching to them. They received the Holy Spirit. You know, there wasn't a kosher food in the house. When they hear that, it says they quieted down and they glorified God and they said, wow. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. To the Gentiles. God has granted the repentance that leads to life. This is crazy. And they glorify God. Repentance is granted not to Gentiles who become Jews. Just plain, old, ordinary, uncircumcised Gentiles. The Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, if you're a Gentile this morning, are you hearing me? We have a share in the promise. And we didn't before. But now we do. The Messiah has come, and it turns out that, surprise, he's for us as well. We had been excluded from the promise, but Jesus had made it so that the promises are for us as well. Let me speak a word to you who are non-Christians here. You may not even, you're like, I don't know exactly what's going on here. But I want you to focus on one thing. If you've not yet believed in Jesus for salvation, then you're hearing really good news right now. 
And the news is that Jesus can be yours. And the forgiveness of sins can be yours, and eternal life can be yours. You have no impediment to overcome. You have no entrance requirement to meet. You have no hoops to jump through. Jesus died for sinners. Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners, every category of sinner that you can think of. Whatever box you've put yourself in, Jesus died for sinners inside that box. You have every warrant in the world to hear this good news and say, I'm a sinner, but I'm going to arise and go to Jesus, and this promise of salvation can be mine. I believe it can be mine. Because yes, it can be yours. Because Peter said back on the day of Pentecost, for the promise is for you and for your children, he's talking to Jews, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the glorious mystery that Paul's talking about in verse 6. This was the secret that God in grace entrusted to him. And I give it to you. Jesus can be yours. No entrance requirements, no hoops to jump through. Repent and believe in Christ, and he's yours. All right, well now Paul's explained the mystery. Now he's going to tell the Ephesians about his privileges. He's very excited about his privileges. His privilege that he gets to reveal the mystery through gospel proclamation. So pick up the reading at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I wonder if you noticed how over and over again in these verses, Paul rejoiced in God's gift of grace to him. The grace that he has, that he gets to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He considers it an immense privilege. Especially since, as he says, he's the least of all the saints. He's the least of all the saints. Why is he the least of all the saints? Well, because he persecuted the church of God. Because he ravaged the church in his former life. He went from house to house, dragging anyone that he could find who believed in Jesus and throwing them into prison. Because breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, it says, he would cast his vote against them when they were being put to death. He hated Christ. He hated the church. He hated believers. This is who he was. But now the ravager of the church, wow, now God has given him this grace. He gets to be the proclaimer of the mystery of the church. He gets to declare the unsearchable riches of Jesus to the Gentiles that he once would have spat upon. He gets to tell them that they can come in. 
be reconciled to God. So Paul's amazed that God would so privilege him, first to reveal the mystery to him, and then to commission him to bring the mystery to light for everyone. So this this all was hidden in God's secret counsel, but now Paul gets to declare it openly. He's like a newsie on the corner of 5th and Main in Manhattan, calling, read all about it! Gentiles, now able, come in on equal access to salvation. So, he's up in house arrest, up in his little apartment. Imagine that. He's chained to this Roman guard. And he's got Jews coming to him. And he gets to testify to them. He gets to testify to the kingdom of God. And he tries to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. That's what it says in Acts 28. So Jews come to him, he preaches the gospel to them. And then, after he's done that, he turns to Roman guard number one, who he's chained to, and what does he get to do with him? He gets to tell the guard about the Jesus that he's in prison for and how God's Messiah is for him as well. Not just for these Jews that he's just been telling, you can come in too. And what happens as Paul preaches to Jew and to Gentile and God gives fruit. And some Jews and some Gentiles believe and they're added in one body into God's household. Look at verse 10 again. What happens? This is kind of amazing. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is he saying? As the church is built up, brick by brick, built of one unified, redeemed people, Jew and Gentile, the angels are watching. And they are learning about the wisdom of God. The angels watch the church and learn the wisdom of God. John Stott writes, We are to think of these rulers and authorities as spectators in the drama of salvation. Thus, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for the angels. Wow. See, as as the church of Jesus grows and expands and fills the earth, as it's doing even now, God is more glorified and more glorified still as awestruck angels and shuddering demons marvel at what our all-wise God is up to. Through you! Through me! The angels are learning more about God. Wow. Because the church is growing. And it's wonderful for them to see. This was always God's plan, of course. In verse 11, this was all, he says, according to the eternal purpose of God, now made real in Jesus. And it is in Jesus that we, no matter what background of sinner we are, now have boldness and access with confidence to God through our faith in him. So what do you reckon... How do you think Paul feels about his stewardship, his work to reveal the mystery of Christ, his role as the apostle to the Gentiles? Is he disgruntled because it's brought him to imprisonment? Is he bitter from all the sufferings 
that he's had to endure? No, he's not. Why not? Well, look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Don't grieve for me. My suffering, your glory. See, Paul's vision is absolutely crystal clear. The cost that he's paid for faithfully carrying out his stewardship, it's nothing. It's dust on the scales in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that God is bringing from it. His sufferings, small. The blessing of salvation going to more and more people, immense. So the Ephesians don't need to distress themselves that he's in prison for them. Because the work he gets to do is so incredible. The fruit of souls saved, the unified church being built up into a dwelling place of God, the wisdom of God on display for the angels, and God is allowing him to play a critical role. Even though formerly he worked to destroy the church, this is a happy man. It doesn't matter that he's wearing chains. Even this suffering, God is turning to glory. Now, brothers and sisters, let's think about this for ourselves. Now, you and I are not the Apostle Paul. We have not been given special new revelation about what the coming of Jesus means for the mechanism of how God saves sinners. But but we do have the same revelation now written down for us. And in broad terms, the Lord Jesus has given us the same commission. Has he not? Go and make disciples of all the nations. You and I are stewards of this same message of salvation that Paul was. So let me ask you, what's your perspective on evangelism? What's your perspective on evangelism? Is it for you an incredible privilege? Or is it more of an unwelcome obligation? If it's an unwelcome obligation, why do you think it is so for you? Why do you feel oppressed at the thought of needing to go and tell other people about Jesus? Or why does your stomach kind of go... Maybe it's because you don't feel skilled. Maybe it's because you're intimidated. But perhaps, could it be that you just don't share Paul's perspective? His perspective that the responsibility that you have to proclaim the gospel is a gracious gift of God to you? Have you ever thought about God giving you evangelism as a job, as a gracious gift? You get to be part of bringing to light the eternal plan and wisdom of God. Evangelism is the means, the necessary means, by which sinners are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And if you're not seeing sharing the gospel as an immense privilege that God has commissioned you to be involved in the work of sharing Christ, then somehow your perspective's off. Now, by the way, you can still think it's an immense privilege and still feel intimidated and still feel unskilled. Right? 
But first, this is a matter of the heart. Do you want to see people on your street or at your workplace or on your kids' ball team to be reconciled to God through Jesus? And do you want to be part of that yourself? If not, would you do some soul-searching and ask yourself, why not? Why does God's glorious cause not engage your heart? When the grace of God has reached to you, why do you feel like it is okay for it just to stop there and not run through you to others? Now, second, let's think about our perspective on suffering. Fear of suffering hardship is probably, I would say, our biggest impediment to evangelism. I think that's pretty safe to say. Friends, I tell you, when I try and share the gospel and I get snubbed or dismissed, I can feel crushed. Don't know about you. It can really knock me off my game, even for days. You know, I love it when evangelism goes well. I bruise really easy when it doesn't. I'll tell you something that's hard for me. When there's an, some opportunity to share the gospel with someone, and I evaluate the situation, and I think there's a good chance that I'm going to be rebuffed if I try and talk to this person about Jesus. Because guess what? Jesus does say that we often will be. He says to expect people not to want to hear. It's hard for me to look at that situation and anticipate a negative response and then go on in anyway. And then what if I happen to be right and the conversation doesn't go well? And they don't want to hear about Jesus or maybe they're offended. It's really hard for me to give that to the Lord and shake it off and say, okay, coach, put me back in. I want to try again. Over here. That's tough for me. When I proclaim the gospel and I get a little beat up, I tend to retreat. I don't see what happened as a cause for rejoicing. I don't see it as glory. But are you and I ready to believe God's word when it connects suffering with glory? See, in this text, we heard Paul say, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here's a few others. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided, see there's a condition, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering and glory are connected. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Revelation 12.11 And the believers overcame him, overcame the devil, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, because they did not love their lives even unto death. See, brothers and sisters, exercising our awesome privilege to proclaim Jesus is going to bring us suffering. But 
Will you and I believe that God can turn it into glory? That he will turn it to glory? Can we believe it such that we would even put ourselves in situations that we think are likely to provoke suffering? And then what if we are suffering in some way for the gospel's sake? We're actually, we're actually suffering hardship for the gospel. Is our only thought, how do I get out of this as soon as possible? Do we see the suffering as the enemy? Or are we willing to endure hardship patiently and trust that God is, is using his crucible of suffering to purify our hearts? These are hard questions. But if we aren't willing to ask them, if we aren't willing to evaluate our perspective on evangelism and on suffering, then how will any of us choose to go to hard places or send our children to hard places for the sake of the gospel and the glory of Jesus? How will we see northern Vermont dotted with lots of church plants that are preaching Jesus if we're not willing to suffer to make it happen? How will we endure if the Lord in his good providence allows persecution to come to believers in Vermont? How will we even keep going in challenging relationships when those whom we love are, for the present time, hardened against the gospel? If we're going to endure, if we're going to see gospel advance, we need to believe the scriptures and be willing to see that the flip side of suffering is glory. I want to close by reading a couple of excerpts from the book Through Gates of Splendor. Some of you may have read it. It was written in 1956. That year, five missionaries, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian died in the jungles of Ecuador at the spears of the Waudani tribe, also known as the Akas. So they're in the jungles of Ecuador. The men were trying to make initial inroads with this people group that had never been engaged with the gospel before so that they could eventually give them the gospel. This book was written by Elizabeth Elliot just a few months after the guys died. Just a few excerpts. Eventually, when four of the five had been found by the search parties, Barbara Udarian wrote in her diary, Tonight, the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had t-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore jeans. God gave me this verse two days ago, Psalm 48, 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. As I came face to face with the news of Raj's death, my heart was filled with praise. He was worthy of his homegoing. I wrote a letter to the mission family trying to explain the peace I have. I want to be free of self-pity. It is a tool of Satan to rot away a life. I'm sure that this is the perfect will of God. Many will say, why did Raj get mixed up in this when his work was with the Hivaro people? Because Raj came to do the will of him who sent him. Elizabeth Elliot then writes, was the price too great? To the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. 
But God has his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on that beach. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission statement, upon hearing this news, they dropped to their knees and cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. Only eternity will measure the number of prayers which have ascended for the widows, their children, and the work in which the five men have been engaged. The prayers of the widows themselves are for the Alcas. We look forward to the day when they will join us in Christian praise. Thousands of people in all parts of the world pray every day that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God may be carried to the Alcas, a people almost totally unheard of before. How can this be done? God, who led the five, will lead others in his way and in his time. Friends, are you and I willing to seek God's grace so that we would see evangelism and gospel proclamation and mission as a privilege? And will you and I see And seek God's grace that we would see suffering for Christ as glory. The way Paul did. The way these dear folks did. May the Lord give the believers at Redeeming Grace Church the grace to freely and with open heart offer the unsearchable riches of Christ to sinners without any distinction, without reservation, all over the place. Let's pray the prayer that they found in Jim Elliot's own diary. He wrote, O Jesus, Master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is thine which has so long waited thee? Now there is no thought of thee among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised then none shall care any for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven. Take thy crown, subdue thy kingdom, enthrall thy creatures. Amen.